Praise the Lord. We'll transition to the preaching of God's word now. Uh, here are a few notes before I begin, though. First, if I have internet problems while I'm preaching, please wait as we try our backup plans. Uh, if you're having internet problems and you can't get back into the Zoom gathering, we do have a pre-recorded audio file of today's sermon available for you. So just ask the Zoom host for today and, and he can send you the link to, uh, to the audio file and you can listen to the sermon on your own. Hopefully you can also rejoin us as soon as possible, especially at the end of our service as we have some time to interact with each other and also to clo close in corporate worship and prayer. Second, for viewing this sermon in Zoom, I'd recommend to choose either the side-by-side -side view option and make each window equal size, or choose the standard view and then swap the shared screen with the pinned window. That way you're not just uh, staring at slides the whole time, but I can be right in your face. Uh, third, the sermon handout and manuscript are available on our website as resources for you if that's helpful for you. All right, let's jump into God's word now. Uh, can we pray one more time? We just need God's grace and God's mercy right now. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our continual prayer in this season is that you would give us the vision of what it's like to be your people in Christ, the joy and the privilege that it is to be saved, consecrated servants of Jesus. And we pray that you would plant that vision in our hearts and minds today through your word, by your grace. It's in Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen. So today's sermon is from Ezra chapter 7 and 8 and is titled Ezra's Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther um, is one of the most important figures in the history of the church because he was a major catalyst for something called the Protestant Reformation. Way back in 1517, Luther famously presented his 95 theses at the University of Wittenberg, a list of propositions that challenged the popular and wrong beliefs of the Western church at the time. And this wasn't intended to start anything big, but it went viral in a 16th century sort of way and is known to be the beginning of this movement that brought the church back to the core biblical beliefs that God's word alone is our authority, and that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. But what I would want to make clear today is this. Before Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation, so to speak, he was reformed by God's word. When he studied it himself, namely when he studied the book of Romans, the word of God transformed his beliefs, convictions, and way of life. And God has a great way of threading his redemptive history together so poetically and perfectly, because this is what happened many, many years before to Ezra as well. And we'll see this in Ezra chapters 7 through 10, that Ezra was used by God to reform the people of Israel. But before he did this, we see that Ezra was reformed by God's word. And so Ezra's reformation of the people of God happened only after Ezra's reformation by the word of God happened. And this is what we'll see in today's scripture. Ezra's example is for us today as well. The one thing from Ezra chapter 7 and 8 
for our generation today is simply this. Be reformed by God's word into action for God's cause. May Ezra's reformation lead to the word and the Holy Spirit working in such a way that we experience a reformation of our hearts and minds as well, orienting us into God's cause. And there's no time like now that we need this. In the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of all the upheaval and unrest in our society today and in, in our generation searching for its identity and purpose, this is what we need. This is what we need today. And may God speak to us powerfully from this scripture today. When we dig back into the scriptures and allow our hearts and minds to be reformed by God's word, we see from Ezra chapter 7 and 8 how it leads to two specific responses. First, passion for God's word ministry. And second, faith steps within God's providence. And these will be the two main parts of my sermon today. We won't read these two chapters in their entirety because it's so long, but I do intend for my sermon to still be an exposition of this scripture. What I'll do is give a summary of Ezra chapter 7 and 8, and then within each of my two main parts, I'll share two principles for us as this generation of reformed Christians. Here's an overall summary and the key parts of Ezra chapter 7 and 8. Uh, Ezra is introduced into the narrative now 57 years later after the events of chapters 1 through 6. So this is two or three generations after that first group of exiles from Babylon settled back into Jerusalem and Judah and rebuilt the temple, which they finished. Ezra was a priest, a scribe, and some sort of government official who was born and raised in Babylon. As he was a student of the scriptures, he was burdened that his fellow Jews in Jerusalem were falling back into the mistakes of their ancestors. And therefore, he, per he requested permission from Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to move to Jerusalem with a group of other Jews, Jews that were still in Babylonia. God's hand was upon Ezra, and he was granted the king's endorsement to do this. And so Ezra, along with other families, priests, Levites, and temple servants traveled the dangerous four-month journey back to Jerusalem, or in their case, the first time to Jerusalem. And this is generally what happened in Ezra chapters 7 and 8. Now let's dive into the details. First, being reformed by God's word into action for God's cause leads to passion for God's word ministry. So let's first take a deeper look at this person, Ezra, and how the word of God shaped him uniquely for this crucial time in the history of Israel. And here's the first principle that I want us to take away from this part. This generation of reformed Christians cultivates passionate learning and teaching of God's word. First, Ezra was a Jew who was born and raised in Babylonia, a foreign pagan land. In fact, most likely even his parents were too. So he was a Babylonian-born Jew, like I'm an American-born Korean, or like some of you are Indonesian-born Chinese, who was at least two generations removed from, their, from the homeland of his people in Judah. And we don't know why, but Ezra's parents 
chose to not go with that first group of exiles that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. temple. Remember, that was like 57 years er, uh, earlier. But there were some clues that highlight that Ezra, Ezra grasped his identity pretty clearly, as well as how he came to those conclusions. First, he was a priest. And according to verses one through five, he knew his lineage was linked all the way to Aaron himself. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and only descendants of Aaron could be priests. Priests were those who served in the temple or tabernacle by offering the sacrifices there and blessing the people in prayer. So it seems like for Ezra and his family and a remnant in Babylonia, this was still an important part of their own lives. They remained in covenant relationship with Yahweh, even while being away from their homeland. Second, Ezra was also a scribe, according to verse 6. This meant that he was trained as an expert in the law, which was the law was the scriptures given to Moses from Yahweh. So as a scribe, Ezra's job was to explain, interpret, and adapt the law into the civic and religious rules of Jewish society. And he was skilled in doing this, which is really, really cool. Ezra was a person really, really good at his job, and God used his expertise in the law and his skill uh, and, uh, and his skill as a careful, sharp, and wise lawyer, as we might call him today, to influence his generation of Jews and even the society at large. I think that this was a big reason how he knew Yahweh personally, and thus how he also how he also knew his identity as part of Israel, the people of God. This is also how he developed his convictions and burdens for his people. As he looked at Yahweh and his law, as he realized the significance of what God had done in sending them into exile because of their sin and in delivering them back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. He had certainly heard reports or rumors of how the Jews, how the returned Jews were like in his present day and age. He had heard that although they had rebuilt the temple a few generations ago, they were still largely ignorant and lost in terms of what their covenant relationship with Yahweh meant. And verse 10 summarizes this well. This is God's word. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had his heart, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. As a priest and scribe, he had a passion for studying the law of the Lord. As he studied, his faith moved him to obeying what it said. He tried his best to order his activities, behaviors, thinking, and desires around what Yahweh revealed about himself and how he wanted his people to live. He desired for his people to also be passionately devoted to the law of the Lord as well. As he grew in love for God's word and it led him to a greater devotion to Yahweh himself, he also developed a vision for his word ministry, to teach his statutes and rules to in Israel. And that last phrase, in Israel, is important. His growing conviction was to go to Jerusalem, a place he'd never been, to teach God's word to this new generation of God's people. And here's the first principle from this part again. 
This generation of Reformed Christians cultivates passionate learning and teaching of God's Word. You know, this sounds great, but if you're like me, to be honest, you're not that passionate about God's Word, even as a believer. It doesn't move you the way that we see it moving Ezra. And what's up with that? Church, what I would challenge us all to do, and I'm including myself especially in this, is to examine our hearts. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, that the condition of our hearts determines how we respond to God's word. And he compared hearts to different kinds of ground that the, that the word gets planted into. First, there's just the path uh, that's just too hard to even allow God's word to get in and to sprout. Second, there's rocky ground where the word gets people excited at first, but try but dries up quickly because no, no roots grow deeply. Third, there's thorny ground. The word gets choked out by distractions in life and the worries of life. And so we start to cultivate passionate learning of God's word by first examining our hearts. Is my heart hard like a path because of my pride in thinking I already know this stuff? Is my heart rocky because I lack the persistence to keep studying the word and the grit to follow through and doing what I know God wants me to do? Is my heart full of thorns, distractions, and worries that choke out whatever growth God wants to happen? Ezra would know that the law points us to God's holiness and also to our sinfulness. And thus, as we see the conditions of our hearts, we must lean completely on God's grace. In light of this, it is 100% a work of God's grace in his people in saving us. It's despite our, our heart conditions that he saves us. There's a lot of ways to describe what happens when this happens. But I'd like to think about, I'd like for us to think about when the resurrected Jesus talked to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. He explained how all the law and the prophets pointed to himself as Jesus was the center and the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. The disciples said that it was like their hearts were burning inside of their chests as Jesus talked to them. When we trust Jesus in this way, that he died for my sins so that I could have new life in him, he changes he changes us. He changes the conditions of our hearts, most especially. Also, as we see in Ezra's case, God's word sparked a passion for God's cause. This is the cause for us, too. Uh, this is the case for us, too. We see a word ministry, a way to serve others in others who need God's word. We see the world differently. That it's not okay for me anymore to see people this way, not knowing God and not knowing his word. For some of us, it will mean preaching sermons. But for all of us, it means in the relationships that we have with people. 
It includes our family members, especially our spouses and our children. It includes our coworkers, friends, and neighbors. It includes fellow brothers, Christian brothers and sisters in, in our church, in our life groups. You have a word ministry, as I've said before, and we'll talk more about this in a second. Let me mention a life application here for you. Confess your, confess your heart condition and ask the Lord to cultivate passion for God's word. I want to ask you to do some honest evaluation of your heart condition at this very moment and see how you receive God's word. Is your, path, is your heart like a path, like the rocky ground, like the thorny ground? This isn't a surprise to God. We humble, we confess it humbly, and, we, and, and let's also make it a bold ask to make our hearts burn as Jesus speaks to us. This is the kind of request that God loves to answer, to, that God loves to say yes to. Let's also be persistent in this because it takes time to cultivate the soil of our hearts to be fruitful. Okay, so let's move on now. In Ezra 7 and 8, we also see that God's word sparked a passion for God's cause in Ezra, specifically for God's people. You see, he saw a need for God's people to be instructed how to orient their lives towards God and his ways. And here's the second principle that I want us to take away from this part. This generation of Reformed Christians is deeply connected and invested into the local church body. Ezra did not go to Jerusalem by himself. He brought more of the remaining exiles back because this was an important part of God's promise to them. Here's what it says in Ezra chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is God's word. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. Amen. The people of Israel, some priests and Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants all went back to Jerusalem. When you look at chapter 8, you see a genealogy of the families that returned with Ezra. Verses 1 through 15 list 15 families that were part of that official registration of people who migrated from Babylonia to Judah with Ezra. And in Ezra, in chapter 8, verse 15, Ezra and these 15 families gathered together at a place along the Ahava River, and they camped there for three days, staging to start on their journey to Jerusalem. But in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 8, as Ezra was reviewing all the rosters of Jews going with him, he realized that there were no Levites uh, among them. There were no Levite families among them. And this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to Ezra. You see, Levites were people from the tribe of Levi, one of the original 12 tribes, who were given the responsibility of running the overall operations in the temple. So by the way, the priests who did the sacrifices in the temple, they were a subset of Levites. And Ezra knew 
how important Levites were in reestablishing proper, reverent worship at the new temple. This was why it was a big deal to him. And so Ezra put the whole launch on pause to assemble a task force of leading men to search for some Levites. They went to the family of Edo. This was also the family that Zechariah, the prophet from 60 years ago, was from. And we don't know much about them here, but they seem to also be still running an enclave of faithful worshipers of Yahweh within Babylonia at a place called Kasafia. They asked Edo if they could send them ministers for the temple in Jerusalem. And they got two men and their families. So 38 people, 38 more men in total. Um, when you think about it, this wasn't a lot at all. But it was crucial for them to have, according to Ezra's opinion. So a total of 1,496 men, along with 38 Levites, and 220 temple servants composed of Ezra's group of returning exiles to Jerusalem. The first batch of exiles, just to compare it, 70, 57 years earlier, totaled 42,360. So this was a significantly smaller number of people joining, uh, returning with Ezra. But the point of all this um, being included in Ezra chapter 7 and 8 is to show that these families and individuals mattered to the Lord, and thus they mattered to Ezra. He invited them to join in on God's plan and purpose for his people. Here's the second principle from this part again. This generation of reformed Christians is deeply connected and invested into the local church body. First, what is our status in terms of, our, of the covenant community of God? The New Testament teaches that what makes us spiritual offspring of Abraham or part of the spiritual Israel is faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29 say this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham, you are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Just to make this clear, when we believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the king that God promised to save us from our sins, and to save us, save us from the punishment of death, we are now part of the people of God when we trust in Jesus Christ. And Ezra's understanding of the scriptures was that all of God's people were important and uh, to how the covenant community was supposed to function. You know, in our day and age, we often do not see that this is still true. All of God's people are important to how a local church is supposed to function. Now, hold on, because I might step on some of your toes here, but please listen to what God might be saying to you. It's even, even before the days of the pandemic, to not have a deep connection and investment with God's people. For some of us, we don't make the effort to connect with people at all. We just attend service and then we're peace out. For some of us, we connect only with a select few uh, of the people, those who we think that we can click with and, and the rest remain scary, intimidating, or unappealing to get to know. 
For some of us, we're usually passively waiting for others to serve us or to approach us. And when people don't, we get judgmental or bitter. But let me tell you today, church, that every person in the church is a valuable part of the, of the church body. And every single one of us have an important part to play in the church body. This is what, Christ, what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 12. I'll read verse 12 and then verses 18 through 21. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. But our bodies have many parts, and Christ has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. The one thing from Ezra chapter 7 and 8 is to be reformed by God's word into action for God's cause. And one big part of God's cause is that he died to save you and me. God died to save his church. And Jesus did this. And he made us one body. And church people are mess messy. It's true. They're inconvenient. They're corrupt. They're chatty. And whatever other opinion that we may have. But you and I are valuable enough to Jesus to, re to redeem us at the price of his own blood. And when he does, he gives us new hearts to love and obey God and his word, including our ministry of God's word and our ministry to God's people. So one of the greatest causes that you can dedicate yourself to is the building up of your church by being deeply connected to the people in that church and by investing yourself in helping each brother and sister in Christ of yours to follow hard after Jesus as you want to follow hard after Jesus. Definitely, you can invest by getting into the word together, teaching and admonishing each other. This is your word ministry. You can invest by praying, serving, giving, and just loving the people in your church. Let me mention another life application here for you. Connect with others in the church by initiating new or stronger relationships. You can deeply connect starting first in your life group but also by engaging in relationships with older and younger ones in the church, familiar and different ones, friendly and intimidating ones, nice or strange ones, ones that are in the front and especially the ones that are in the fringes. May we treasure this all the more having been separated during this pandemic and as we prepare to meet in person more in the coming months. Amen. So being reformed by God's word into action for God's cause leads to passion for God's word ministry. Second, we'll see that it also leads to faith steps within God's providence. <clears throat> In this entire narrative, we see God's providence. That is the way that he is the primary cause of everything in this world and the steps of faith that Ezra took in light of it. And it's pretty amazing. Here's the third principle that I want us to take away from this part. This generation of Reformed Christians expresses faith in God's province by taking steps of obedience. Let's read this one part of the scripture from Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. 
This is God's word. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Amen. <clears throat> this one verse here offers a great review of what's gone on here so far. Ezra was someone personally reformed by God's word in his life in Babylonia. This was a work of God's grace. And this was not just for himself. No, this gave him his ministry as a skilled scribe to make sure that his small community of Jews who remained in Babylonia lived by the law of Moses. But this personal reformation also led Ezra to see the, the need for a greater cause, that the people of Israel who had returned to Jerusalem 37 or 57 years earlier were at risk of breaking covenant with the Lord again. And as I mentioned earlier, they remained largely ignorant of God's law in Jerusalem. Those leaders from before, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Haggai and Zechariah, they were gone. Generations had passed now, and the memories of all that God had done were fading away from the people's memory. Ezra had probably heard these reports and grew burdened for his people. In verse 6, it says the king granted him all that he asked. So it seems as though Ezra had some service to King Artaxerxes, and he had direct access to him. And in that direct access to him, Ezra actually requested to the king to be released to go to Jerusalem. So Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26, records Artaxerxes' decree in response to Ezra's request. And this was in, in a letter. In the providence of God, Artaxerxes sent, ended up sending Ezra to Jerusalem as a direct representative of the king of Persia to make sure that the Jews were falling in line with God's word. In fact, according to verses 25 and 26, the king ordered Ezra to appoint magistrates. Magistrates were, were like civic officials who carried out the law, and he appointed judges, civic officials who decided on legal cases, and he appointed magistrates and judges all throughout the region who were specifically trained in the law of Moses and how to apply it to their society. And not just in Judah, but actually the whole province beyond the, beyond the river. Additionally, Artaxerxes sent Ezra with a huge offering from the royal treasury to cover the expenses for all the sacrifices that were, be, were to be given at the temple and all the overhead costs required for the priests and Levites to run the temple operations. If they needed more, Artaxerxes decreed that more funds could be taken out of the royal treasury. He even gave them a tax exemption status to ensure that the temple was run well. This was how Ezra responded to King Artaxerxes' letter in Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. This is God's word again. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and, those, and, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. So we see here that Ezra praised God for his steadfast love. There's that word hesed again, his steadfast love in his life. And specifically 
for providing this favor of the king in this request. It went above and beyond what Ezra even asked for. Yahweh had put, it, put this on his heart, and he took a courageous step of faith in accordance with his convictions from God's word and what he saw among his people. And then he experienced the hand of the Lord, his God, on him. Here's the third principle from this part again. This generation of reformed Christians expresses faith in God's providence by taking steps of obedience. As Ezra had set his heart to study the scriptures and was committed to doing what it said himself and to teach it to his people, it led to these steps of faith that he had to take. These steps of obedience don't always have to be something big that totally changes our life direction, although that might come someday in your life. But these are actually usually more in the little steps of obedience that are exercises of faith in Christ that we need to take. Let me give an example. James the Apostle wrote this in James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, this is pretty simple, right? We're to confess sins to our brother, uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as a way to keep each other accountable and facilitate for each other the forgiveness that is available in Christ. It's also so we can pray for each other and that so that God can bring healing in our lives as we confess our sins. And this is so powerful. But sadly, we don't experience this, this power uh, often in our lives because we think that it's this kind of, these kinds of commands, this kind of stuff that is optional. And we don't seriously consider obeying. Or maybe we are convicted to do this, but we're afraid of doing it out of fear of hurting our reputations or fear of what other people will think. No matter what, we keep sins a secret. And we don't experience the value and joy of confessing our sins to one another. You see, this is an expression of our faith to obey in these small ways that are, all, that are already revealed to us in the scriptures. Uh, Neil Armstrong, as the first man to walk on the moon, said this when he, when he did it. He said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So not only did he crush it when that opportunity came to speak to the whole world and to say something profound, but this is also something that's adapt, very adaptable in terms of, of us being a generation of reformed Christians who express our faith by taking little steps of obedience. When you take one small step of obedience, it is not small. It is a giant leap for your development as a disciple of Jesus. You are reinforcing in yourself that God is in control of everything in this universe. And so you're going to, to, go, to go about life his way. Those little steps accumulate and take you one step at a time to those other opportunities when God will, not can, but will use you in others' lives and in your world. This is the providence of God. Let me mention a related life application here for you. 
Church, consecrate yourself to obedience to Christ in the small steps he has already revealed. I mentioned this world consecrate last week. It's this idea of being set apart for God. I'd say that it's being resolved to obey God in whatever steps he wants us to take, big or small. And let's start with what he's already told us. There are tons of one another commands in the New Testament that we should obey. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel into our hearts to address our reservations, our fears, our reluctance, our excuses to not do them. So just keep telling yourself, one small step of obedience is a giant leap for my development as a disciple of Jesus. Okay, let's move on again now. And lastly, I want to highlight one final thing <clears throat> that Ezra did as he led this remnant back to Jerusalem as an expression of faith in the providence of God. He led his people to fast and pray. <clears throat> Here's the fourth principle that I want us to take away from this part. This generation of reformed Christians expresses faith in God's providence by fasting and praying together. Doesn't this seem a bit contradictory if you think about it? God is totally in control of everything in the universe. Therefore, we fast and pray. And this is fascinating to think about. Let's look at this scene again at the river, at the Ahava River again. Ezra had reviewed all the families that had joined onto this journey. He had recruited two more Levite families, and now they were ready to go. But this is what happened next before they left. Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. This is God's word. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Amen. So Ezra, although he had asked King Artaxerxes for permission to go to Jerusalem and to lead a bunch of families uh, to resettle there, he was ashamed to ask for additional military protection for the dangerous 1,500-kilometer journey. He had told the king that Yahweh's hand would protect them. So he was shy to ask because it seemed to him, perhaps, as, a con as contradictory to his faith. Also, Ezra, Ezra saw this decision as being consistent. What he taught about God from the scriptures, that he provides and protects his people, was going to be how he lived his life, especially as the king was watching him. Ezra's fast entailed all the people abstaining from eating and asking the Lord, in his words, imploring for God to get them their families, and their stuff to Jerusalem safely. This was an exercise of humbling themselves before God and depending on him for his protection all along the journey that they would, that they, that they would take for the next four months. This journey was far and definitely entailed encounters with bandits, robbers, and hostile people. But Ezra was aware of the scriptures too. 
in the law, Yahweh always told his people that he would fight for them. They didn't need a human king. They didn't need an army to protect them. And in light of this, Ezra felt the need to fast and pray as well and had the whole community do it together. You know, it seems to me that fasting in this situation was in intimately tied with prayer. Ezra used this vocabulary to describe that they were praying. They sought from God's safe journey in verse 21. They implored their God for this, verse 23. They were confident that God had listened to their entreaty or earnest request in verse 23. So their fasting wasn't to somehow gain favor or to twist God's arm or to magically make something happen. It was to help, it was to, help to keep them urgent and persistent in their prayers. And even though in verse 31, Ezra acknowledged that they did face enemies and ambushes along the way. No other details are given, but Yahweh did protect their lives and their property all along the way. They made it to Jerusalem. And here's the final principle from this part again. This generation of reformed Christians expresses faith in God's providence by fasting and praying together. There are many biblical examples and reasons why we should fast, but this, what we see in Ezra chapter 7 and 8, is definitely one of them. It's a paradox, but it's something we do. We trust God's providence in the world. Therefore, we fast and pray for what we need, for strength to go through whatever he brings our way, for faith to obey him no matter what, for God to be glorified in whatever happens. As the Lord said in John 15, verses 7 and 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As we hold on to Jesus by faith in him and his words light a fire in our hearts, we begin to pray and ask that he bears this kind of fruit of obedience and carrying out his will through us. Is there ever a more dire time than now in our world with pandemic, social upheaval, and other crises that we need to be strengthening our prayer lives when God's church needs to be urgently and persistently imploring and making entreaties to him? Church, listen up. We need to wake up from our spiritual slumber and get dependent on God again. Here's that paradox. We don't fast to reinforce how strong or valuable we are to God's work. We fast to reinforce how weak we truly are and how much of a great privilege it is to be a part of God's providential plan for our generation. Let me mention one final life application here for you. Commit to fasting and praying for the church as we go through this rebuilding season. Can I invite us to be fasting and praying together as a church? There are plenty of good resources about fasting online, so I won't go in, into the details here. You can ask uh, your leaders, uh, you can ask me even for any recommendations for how to fast. In the past, we have set aside Thursdays to fast as a church, and I'm inviting us to do this, especially in light of transitioning to hybrid church gatherings and this theme of rebuilding our church to be everything he, God wants us to be and to do everything that God wants us to do. We're not going to be legalistic about it. Just as the Lord convicts you about it, join us. 
We want to see us as a generation of reformed Christians who are passionate through God's word, for God's church, and for God's cause. And remember, as we fast and pray, that it is only done by God's power and for his glory. This is why we fast and pray. <sighs> Praise the Lord. I knew that this would be a, a, a kind of a long sermon, but I believe that this will be such an important message for us to take to heart as a church in this moment of our church life. Can we bring it all to the Lord now in prayer? May you respond to the word of God and to the spirit of God and be reformed by God's word into action for God's cause. Amen.